suttas earlier, the Pali suttas. Those are the, um, the oldest Buddhist texts. And um, those are the, the texts that the Theravadan traditions um, follow most closely. So that includes like the Thai forest tradition, if you've heard of the Thai forest um, sect of Buddhism. Um, they're a, a Theravadan school. And they they place their emphasis on the the um, suttas, which are uh, their sutras is a Sanskrit word. Sutta is the Pali word, and Pali is a Prakrit dialect, a language similar to Sanskrit. And the oldest Buddhist texts um, only exist in their Pali form. And there's there's um, different possible reasons for for why that would be. Um, one possibility is that uh, Buddha taught in a Prakrit dialect and not in formal Sanskrit, which is um, and kind of always has been an academic or upper upper class language. And Buddha was uh, Gautama Buddha was uh, a populist, and he kind of shunned the religious orthodoxy of the time and the and the political hierarchies of the time. And so he likely taught and spoke um, a, a common dialect as opposed to formal Sanskrit. Um, so the, um, the, the Buddhist teachings that were preserved, which were, um, which were an oral tradition, you know, for hundreds of years before they were collected and written down, those were preserved in Pali rather than the Pali language rather than the Sanskrit language. So the those old suttas or sutras are um, are preserved to the present day in the Pali language. So there are, it's often called the Pali canon, um, canon meaning, uh, you know, a collection of literature. And um, Pali, the, the, the term Pali canon doesn't really refer to Buddhist literature per se, but it does refer to the fact that those old suttas are preserved in, in that language. Whereas the Mahayana sutras, the later sutras, were preserved um, in um, Sanskrit. And, you know, around the turn of the last millennium, um, around 800 to 1100 or thereabouts, um, India, northern India in particular, um, was in quite a bit of military conflict due to invasions from outside sources. And um, libraries were destroyed, Buddhist universities were destroyed, and a lot of the literature was lost. Um, so much of the Mahayana sutras that we have today are preserved in Tibetan language or Chinese language. So there's there's some overlap with the with the Sanskrit texts, but the um, the older literature is preserved in Pali, and the newer literature, the Mahayana literature, is preserved in Tibetan and Chinese. So we're always working with translations, and often we're working with translations of translations. Um, but one of the things that I find interesting is looking for evidence of. Mahayana literature in the older sutras. 
So one of the things that, you know, the Mahayana school, the Mahayana schools, the Mahayana philosophy of Buddhism really emphasizes the Bodhisattva path, the path of altruism. And in the kind of debate ground world of Buddhism, where different philosophical schools are kind of going head to head to, to decide who's got the more sophisticated or the more developed philosophical system, the Mahayana schools one of their critiques of the Theravadan schools is that they don't have the Bodhisattva path. But that's actually not true. There's a lot of evidence of the Bodhisattva path in the Theravadan schools. They just didn't, they didn't emphasize it as much as the Mahayana sutras, like, for example, the Lotus Sutra, which is all about the Bodhisattva path and has a whole chapter on um, Avalokiteshvara and how Avalokiteshvara's whole jam is rescuing people who are in distress. But um, what I'm trying to find now is this example from um, an old sutta that describes how to, what what are the eight characteristics of a Buddhist? Um, and I don't, I'm having trouble finding my my highlight from earlier, but I more or less remember it. It's nice to go directly to the texts when possible. Um, but uh, anyway, Gautama Buddha said that there are eight things that a person needs to do in order to be a Buddhist. And the first is going for refuge to the Buddha. The second is going for refuge to the Dharma. The third is going refuge to the Sangha. So we see that, you know, this is a familiar thing because we always start our um, Buddhist practice and our Buddhist teachings by going for refuge to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then the next four are the um, five main precepts, which are uh, not harming uh, other beings physically, not stealing or taking things that aren't offered, um, not using wrong speech. So in our list of 10 that we've been doing in this class, um, we have four of, of uh, wrong speech, right? Lying, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle speech. And Buddha, Gautama Buddha lumped all of those into wrong speech. The fourth is um, avoiding sexual misconduct, and the fifth is avoiding intoxicants. But I guess I should say that those five are actually number uh, are, are this new list of eight that Buddha's providing, right? Going for refuge to Buddha, going for refuge to Dharma, going to re for refuge to Sangha, not harming other beings, not stealing, um, not, um, you know, doing wrong speech, uh, not committing sexual misconduct, and not using intoxicants. So um, that's a pretty succinct list. You know, when we have this, like, this proliferation of uh, of um, Buddhist philosophy over the subsequent of subsequent twenty five hundred years, um, there's a lot of questions about well, what is it you know what does it mean to be a Buddhist? There are you know there are different schools of thought that say well you know you have there is like the emptiness school and there's the the Yogacara or the mind only school and there's the Vajrayana schools and so all of these different approaches that that have different that emphasize different aspects as saying, well, this is the most important part of the practice. And one of the things that um, is nice about the old suttas, the Pali suttas, is that they're they're uh, fairly to the point. You know, they're they're un they're unembellished. 
But one of the disadvantages of the old suttas is that is also that they're unembellished, that um, there's not a lot of explication, you know, like in this text that I was reading earlier, Buddha gives this list of eight things that you have to do to be a Buddhist um, or to, to follow the Buddhist path, we should say, because in those days, there was no such thing as Buddhism. Buddha wasn't trying to start an ism. He wasn't trying to be a cult leader or a religious founder. But these these eight characteristics of his of his methodology, um, he gives that list, but he doesn't go into a lot of detail about why or what it means. So that's why we have this this proliferation of Buddhist philosophies and Buddhist schools of of uh, people over the centuries trying to figure out what Gautama Buddha really meant when he gave his his uh, original teachings. So I mentioned that just as a you know another way to approach the the practice of refuge and um, the practice of setting our motivation, um, knowing that uh, in the oldest texts of Buddhism that Gautama Buddha is is uh, it's attributed to him personally. So it's it's um, one of these teachings or practices that stands the test of time. Um, and he also teaches that um, uh, metta or maitri, again, the same word which we translate as loving kindness or sometimes friendliness um, um, in, in psychology and psychotherapy, they call it unconditional positive regard. They're not necessarily coming from a Buddhist angle, but they've hit upon the same practice of uh, regarding others with kindness and um, holding an attitude of, of non-judgmentality in our relationships with others and treating them always with gentleness and respect and love. Um, and uh, again, in the, in the Pali Suttas, Buddha says that this is the most important practice, uh, the most important mindset. He says that of those other eight, even more important than, than those, is to hold an attitude of, of loving kindness. And then he go, goes on to say that even more important than that is um, having even a moment of clearly understanding impermanence, which is the in the Pali canon how they talk about emptiness is impermanence, the, the not just gross impermanence, how like things eventually break and we get bummed out when something we like breaks or someone we love dies but subtle impermanence, that things are constantly in flux and that they only exist the way they seem to exist because of our perception of them. And that's a big part of the, the topic for um, the class tonight. So um, as you know, we're in a, a course on karma, how karma works. And this is class four out of six. So we're just starting the second half of the course. We are following a, um, a syllabus or um, an outline, and I have that posted online, and I'm going to get the link for you now uh, and put it in the comments. So that you uh, so that you can um, both see the syllabus, but also that you um, 
have the the readings because uh, it's important that that I provide um, textual sources for the things that I'm saying so uh, so as to convey that I'm not just making stuff up about Buddhism but that there is that this is coming from a lineage a historical that there's historical precedent and and past Buddhist teachers and Buddhist masters who have outlined these ideas and in that way I'm I and we us all are carrying on this tradition um, and part of that tradition is that we can go back and read what others have said and written about it um, so we've um, we've talked a lot in the in the previous classes we've talked about worldview how we think the way how we think the world is working whether we think things happen sort of by chance or randomness um, whether we think that there is there are more powerful beings in the universe that are controlling the world and we are um, kind of subject to their whims or if we can subscribe to this notion that uh, all things are in the nexus of causality, which is all karma is saying, but karma is is making is saying that there's no shortcuts, there's no there's no way around that. If you if you accept this worldview that everything is is happening because of cause and effect, um, then even our thoughts have uh, put even our thoughts are causes that put into effect. Um, future results and and also that everything that we're experiencing in in our present moment is the result of previous causes and that we can't circumvent that process somehow ever so you know one of the rules or the or the laws or the principles of karma is that um, every cause produces a definite result and um, and it produces a result that is similar to the cause. Um, so what the worldview that, that Buddhist karma is asking us to put our mind into, to try on and see if we can accept that this is how things are working, is that our motivation, our intention, the way that we think about things, the way that we react to things, um, and and the the speech that that causes, the speech that that leads to, and the actions that those lead to, um, are putting into place definite causes that will come back to us as a similar experience. And that's something that we've also talked in the past uh, classes. We've talked about um, karmic correlations, what types of results come from what types of causes. And with karmic correlations, we start to get a sense of how we can be more conscientious and intentional about the way that we use our, our mind and our speech and the way that we act in the world and the way that we treat other people in order to facilitate having positive results in the future. Negative actions, harmful actions, selfish actions, ignorant actions, lead to negative results for us in the future, maybe in a future life, maybe after this body dies, that consciousness continues into a future birth, and then the results will come on that future birth. So even if I say, even if I myself, who I think of, my name and my you know self, self-conception, my identity, when that dies, I'm still caretaking for a mind stream where my actions are going to lead to results for 
somebody else in this same kind of continuity. That's another thing we're going to get into tonight. Um, how, how karma flows through time or how karma is perpetuated. This may be a better way to, to think of it. So that's um you know that's something in a previous class if you want to go back and listen to the recordings um, karmic correlations and that uh, gives us some some clues about what kinds of actions in the past produce the kind of life that we have now and how we're reacting to things now is setting up a future type of life. Um, so then we also talked about the. Um, the 10 major karmic misdeeds and their positive counterparts, the, the um, types of activities to avoid in order to prevent negative results in the future, and the types of actions to engage in to ensure positive results in the future. Um, and then we also talked about precepts or vows and how um, when we when we refrain from doing a harmful action, we don't create a negative karma. But if we vow to never uh, do that same harmful action, then we're creating positive karma all the time because we, if, uh, if I like see an insect and I decide not to swat it, then I get a good karma of not killing, or, I, or rather I don't get the negative karma of killing in that moment. But if I make a vow and I say I'm going to not kill another living being for the rest of my life, then even when I'm not choosing to not kill a being, like when I'm sleeping or when I'm, when I'm watching a movie and I'm not in the action where I'm not interacting with other beings and I'm not, about, and I'm not choosing to kill them or not, um, I'm still, I'm still I'm creating a positive imprint in my mind because I'm consistently keeping my vow, my precept. Um, then we also talked about the things that make stronger karma versus uh, weaker karma. Things like strong emotion, having a strong intention when we do something, um, and also habits. You know, one, one of the ways to think about karma that I think we can really easily wrap our minds around is habit. When we do something, when we do something repeatedly, it becomes easier and easier to do that thing. And that's, you know, one of the aspects of karma is that we, we develop these habits of behavior. But similarly, we can change our habits. And changing ha habits is difficult at first, but over time it becomes easier. And that, that fact that habits become easier is an aspect of planting karma by intentionally doing the activity that we're trying to build the habit of, and then it ripens as that activity is easier to do next time. And then, and then eventually, we have the habit of not killing another being, for um, as an example, and we don't have to think about whether or not to grab the fly swatter because it is just the way that we see the world that we, we sort of believe in our core that harming living beings, even you know, seemingly incidental ones like insects, is something we don't participate in because we don't want to create the negative karma that's going to ripen in the future. Um, so I think that, you know, that's kind of an outline. We talked about those topics in detail in the past classes, and that kind of gets us up to the present. Um, but one of the things that's challenging about karma is 
that there's a time gap. Um, we don't see an immediate relationship between cause and effect. We do in some ways, right? Like we we know that if we're tired, then we sleep and we should wake up feeling refreshed, right? We understand cause and effect in that kind of basic way. But what karma, the Buddhist karma is saying is that, okay, when, you know, any illness that you experience, including aging, including, um, you know, the inevitable death of our corporeal body, that all of that injury and so on, all comes from having not respected life in the past. And that could be in the past from a previous, from a previous life, um, you know, an action that we're not even aware of. Um, and so, you know, like the, if, if we, if there was no time gap, then when you kill a bug and your arm breaks, you, it would be, you would be able to draw, make the connection, right? The causal connection would be, would be uh, easily visible and accessible. But the time gap could be any length of time. Um, and therefore, we don't see the relationship between cause and effect and karma. And this is a challenge both in terms of learning to accept this worldview of causation, which is why we have to practice, you know, do the philosophical work, the philosophical practice of trying on the worldview and contemplating the what the philosophical texts are saying and putting these things into practice in our life to test them, to try them out logically. Um, but it's also uh, an ongoing philosophical problem for Buddhism. Um, and one of the main philosophical, philosophical problems in the history of Buddhism is how does karma propagate through time? Um, so this is where, like, the early Theravadan school, out of the Theravadan school emerged the Abhidharma school. And the Abhidharma school is a, kind of a late Theravada school that is trying to articulate how the mind works in such a way that karma can be propagated from one moment to the next through, through instances of, of consciousness. Um, Another major school is the Yogacara school, which is also called the Chittamatra school or the mind-only school. And um, the mind-only school has, a, has another way of talking about this, which is the, that there's an aspect of our consciousness called the, um, the storehouse consciousness. It's um, sometimes also called the... Um, the base consciousness or the foundation consciousness, um, and what what the what the mind only school is is trying to articulate is that there is like a reservoir of karma that is that 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 stores, which is why it's called a store storehouse consciousness that stores all of our past karmic seeds, and that they're held in this kind of enormous vault in our consciousness. Um, but it's important to emphasize that that's a metaphor. The, the, the Yogacara school is not making the argument that we literally, that there's some part of our mind that holds all of these karmic seeds. And, and so this is one of the kind of challenges of figuring out how karma, how, how karma works. 
Um, and in that link that I put in the chat, um, you'll see that I put a, a graphic that shows the um, the sort of the, the mind-only school's uh, articulation of how the eighth consciousness works. And one of the most important things is that it has a self-perpetuating and self-verifying function. So what happens with, um, what happens is that we experience things, right? And our, our experiences come through what are called the, 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 the six consciousnesses. And those are our senses, our senses and our, and our perceptual faculty, right? So sight, sound, smell, taste, uh, physical sensations, and the capacity of our mind to perceive those things. And, so, and, and including thoughts, right? Because our, our thoughts are perceived primarily by the, uh, the mental aspect of our consciousness and not our senses. Uh, the, yeah, not our sense consciousnesses, but our mental consciousness. And that's how come imagination is also a, and intention is also an aspect of how karma is uh, created. So we we have these experiences and we react to those experiences. And that reaction is what plants the karma or or creates the karma that is stored, I'm using air quotes, in the eight, the in the storehouse consciousness. Um, and so then, th then what happens is the storehouse consciousness has this self-verifying function, which I kind of think of as like a, a ship's manifest or something like that. Like there's all the karma in there, but then there's also there's like a catalog of all the karma that's in there. And the catalog gets checked and the catalog gets verified. And that's what, you know, keeps all the, the karma uh, stored. Now, again, this is a metaphor. This is not how it really works. This is a way to help us think about how karma, how karma is processed by our mind. So then it also goes the other way, right? Our experiences, our reactions to our experiences plants the karma. The karma is stored in the storehouse consciousness. And then um, this, the seeds are also constantly ripening and coming from the storehouse consciousness. And then those those seeds ripen as the experiences that we are perceiving with our senses. So it's kind of a, it's a closed loop system. Our reactions plant the seeds, the seeds uh, ripen after a time gap, a delay of an indeterminate period, the seeds ripen, they ripen as our experiences, which we then react to, and then those are what's stored in the, in the storehouse. So the, the tricky thing then is that um, according to Buddhist cosmology, we have countless previous lives. Time has no beginning and presumably time has no end. Um, and the reason for this is also due to karma. Um, Buddhism teaches that there is, you, you can't have a cause you can't have a result that's not the result of a previous cause. And therefore, it logically negates the possibility of a first cause that like put the whole thing into, into action. Um, and based on that logical proof, um, the, there's no beginning to the process 
of karma, and there's also no end to the process of karma. So that storehouse, quote unquote, um, has an unlimited amount of previous karmic seeds. That creates um, that a bit of a conundrum because if we if we can put our imagination, if we can try on this thought experiment that there's infinite past karma that we've create that we you know not you with your identity but this stream of consciousness has created through beginningless time. I'm reticent to say infinite because I don't know that Buddhism is actually saying that there's infinite time. I think Buddhism is saying that time is an ongoing process that has no discernible beginning and no discernible end. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the same as infinite. Nevertheless, um, that's another philosophical problem which we can, you know, uh, speculate about the metaphysics of, but. The, the thought experiment then is that we have, um, that the storehouse, our consciousness is ca capable of storing an unlimited amount of past karma. So every good and bad and neutral thing that's ever happened has been stored in this past, in, in this uh, storehouse. And then as a result, because of the time gap, any karma can ripen from that storehouse essentially at any time. Um, this, you know, this initiates this kind of problem of like, well, any type of karma can ripen in the present. So we don't really have uh, control over what our, what our experiences are because we have an unlimited amount of past karma that's ripening, uh, that's potential, that has the potential to ripen. And also, our reactions are planting seeds in this storehouse of virtually unlimited karma. So the question is then that like our individual actions are not necessarily what is going to plant the karma of having positive or negative results in the future. It's kind of a bummer because uh, it's nice to think that we can manipulate karma, um, that if I just if I do no bad things and only good things, this is one of the this is one of the uh, strategies for karmic management. I don't do zero negative karmas and only do good karmas. Eventually, all the old negative karmas will be exhausted, and there will only be good karmas, good karmic seeds that are capable of ripening. Okay, that's a strategy. I don't think there's anything really wrong with that strategy. Doing no harmful acts and only doing good acts would be. Uh, spiritually beneficial. Um, but the, the Yogacara school says that there's a different way that this works. And they, they call it, uh, this, is, this is kind of, um, you know, I've read some translations from Chinese into English. And they, in, in the Chinese, they use this term that, trans, that translates to English as perfuming. And it's the same word that they use to like, uh, like make jasmine tea, where you put green tea in a bag and then you put a bunch of jasmine flowers in the bag and then you can take the jasmine flowers out and the green tea smells like jasmine and tastes like jasmine. It's the same, they use the same word. And so by planting, by emphasizing planting our good karma, what we're doing is perfuming the entire storehouse. And by perfuming the entire storehouse, we are encouraging more positive seeds to ripen.
So that is, in a nutshell, that is how the Yogacara school views the uh, the karmic process. Um, and again, I recommend taking a look at that, that graphic on the website that, that, that shows that that loop, that cycle of how karma is planted in the storehouse consciousness and how it ripens from the storehouse consciousness. Um, okay, so we got to bracket all of that and recognize that that's a metaphor. Um, there are also a number of logical proofs within Buddhism that disprove the, the idea of a literal storehouse consciousness. And one of those uh, logical disproofs is that once a cause happens in the past, that cause, the, the action ceases to exist, and therefore the action ceases to be a cause for a future result until the result occurs, and then and only then did the past cause become the future result. So causa causation works in both directions. In physics, they have this idea of time's arrow. And uh, time's arrow is, is like, why does time move in one direction and not the other direction? Why do, we see, why do we see things spill, but we don't see things unspill? Why do we get older, but not younger? And uh, this is one of the big, you know, kind of problems in, in physics is explaining why does time move only in one direction? Um, and in, in Buddhist metaphysics, um, the problem of time's arrow is is kind of nullified because Buddhism says, well, really past causes only become causes when future results occur and only when the, or rather you should say present results occur. And when a present moment r result occurs, that's what, that's what makes the cause a cause. So in other words, our actions are not planting seeds in the sense of discrete instances, but rather they are, this is the perfuming metaphor put a different way, rather we are shifting a, 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 a balance of sort of an integrated whole, right? W-H-O-L-E. Um, and by creating new, the types of actions that we're doing are not um, are not individual causes for individual results at some point in the future. And the things that we're experiencing as individual results are not, are not coming from individual causes. This is another thing that makes karmic management a little bit tricky, right? This idea that like, well, if I want to get rich, I have to be generous. Well, it's not that each, each time you give a dollar to a, a, a homeless person that that equates one million dollars that you'll have in your hypothetical ultra-rich future and that you can kind of work karma that way. It's really more that we are influencing the entire matrix of causation for, for ourselves, right? Again, we're only ever working with our own karma. And so we are, and again, this is like habit again, right? So if we think of habit as a metaphor for karma, then everything we experience is like a trend, a trend in, in, the, in the direction of a flow of a river, so to say. So this is where um, the, the metaphor of the storehouse breaks down. And um, 
And for what it's worth, the, the Yogacara school acknowledges the limitations of this metaphor. You know, if you read what the Madhyamaka, the middle way school says, the Yogacharans have it wrong. They think it's the, they think there's a storehouse consciousness, but there's no such thing. Well, okay, the Yogacharans also say there's no such thing as a storehouse consciousness, and they, and they know that it's a metaphor. But that's Buddhist debate tit-for-tat stuff, and that's not very important for us unless we want to go into um, Buddhist philosophy as a vocation. Um, the sum total of all karma that we've ever created exists in each moment, and, it, and the sum total of karma propagates to the next moment. So there is no collection of karma other than the flow of our consciousness through time in an ongoing present. And this is why the, the idea of beginningless time, I think, makes more sense than infinite time or infinite past. Because there's actually only an ongoing now. Um, there's, there's a flow of ongoing nows. And the past exists as a conception of a past that we have with our memories and our self-conception and our habits and, and our identity formation. And the future exists as uh, potential karma that's going to ripen. But those things exist only as potentialities within an ongoing flow of karma in the present moment. So on the one hand, if we take the storehouse metaphor, it's daunting because it's like we have infinite past karmas. And then if you think of infinite past lives, then it's like we've lived every other kind of life infinite numbers of times. Um, this is like the, med the, the mother meditation that you see in like the Lojong teachings of of Tibetan Buddhism, which is like treat every being as if they're your mother. Because uh, if you take as a, as a given, if you take this posit that there's infinite past lives, then you've been every in every relationship with every other living being, including um, having been the child of every living being and including having been the mother of every living being. And that's an interesting thought experiment. Um, but what, Instead, but another way, the, the breakdown of that is that we, uh, we've also created all of the most heinous karmas you can ever possibly imagine, the worst stuff that's ever happened. We've also done all of that because of infinite past lives. So we can bracket that and say, okay, there's infinite past karmas. Let's say there are infinite past karmas. But we can also say, but those infinite past karmas only exist as a flow of consciousness in the present moment. And therefore, how I tweak my consciousness perfumes the entire causal matrix. And this is why virtue, developing virtue and taking precepts and holding moral conduct is so important because Everything that we're doing is not just planting new seeds in this like vast, you know, bucket, this vast garden, but rather it's shifting the balance of power, the balance of potentiality for this whole matrix of karma, this whole nexus of karma. And that's very hopeful. And that's why we can actually make rapid changes in our spiritual life 
once we really become dedicated. This is why in, you know, what we've talked about in, in some previous classes is why um, worldview is so important and why wrong views are so harmful, why ignorance is a problem, and why wisdom is a solution to that problem. Because wisdom is understanding more deeply the process of karma and therefore having more confidence and, um, and faith, you know, uh, um, cultivated faith, not blind. We start with blind faith and we kind of work towards cultivating faith by developing our wisdom. And when the more faith we have in, in this process, the easier it becomes to avoid doing negative actions and the, um, the easier it becomes to do positive actions. Uh, again, in one of those Pali suttas that I was reading earlier, um, Gautama Buddha says, if people understood how karma works, they would never put a bite of food in their mouth without first putting a bite of food in someone else's mouth. The only way you have food is because you feed others. Um, and he's adamant about that. He's like, if you only had one bite of food, you would at least share it with somebody else. Um, and so that's why he's trying, that's why Buddhism emphasizes cultivating wisdom um, so strongly. So the, um, so the way that, that karma works, to talk about that loop again, that closed loop, um, and hopefully this is more succinct because I know that, that this is all kind of a bit of a, a pretzel. This does pretzel stuff to my mind when I try to think through all of this. Um, so hopefully more succinct. Um, past karma, because of our tendencies, because of our habits and the past karma that we've, that we've planted in the past or the, the tendencies that are in this flow of karma that exists only in the present, um, we have a habit of two wrong tendencies. And the two wrong tendencies are actually two sides of the same coin. And this is one of the core problems in Buddhism, uh, according to Buddhism, is that we, we believe that I, you know, your self-identification, this body and this particular intellect and self-conception each, for each of us, we believe that that's me, that I am this, this body and this particular intellect, this particular, you know, self-conception. And that, and I believe that when I'm born, I'm created and I exist as me for my life. And that when, when I'm in, when, when the, when my, when I experience an injury that I'm injured, when somebody offends me that I'm offended, when uh, I have a mental affliction or an emotional reaction that I'm angry or I'm depressed, as opposed to I'm experiencing a mental affliction in this mind stream. Um, and that when this body dies, that I die. That's one of the misconceptions. The other misconception is that the, that everything that I experience in the world that's not me, all the other objects and all the other people, that those things exist independent of my perception of them. That they, that they exist, the that... Another way of saying that, that my perception of them is how they really are. Um, when in fact, they only exist as my perception of them. 
uh, I never interact with anything that's not my perception. And this is what mind-only school is referring to. You only ever interact with your mind. Um, you think you're interacting with the objects out there as they are, but you're only ever interacting with your sense perceptions of them and your conceptions of them. So those are these two wrong views that I'm continually having, that I'm continually pe perpetuating. That I exist as that I exist as me is a, as a real discrete entity, and that all of the objects that I'm interacting with are uh, exist the way that they they exist independent of my perception. So when these, these, these are tendencies, so this is important, is that that tendency is what causes the karma to emerge of, as me seeing the world that way automatically without even having to, in, to think twice about it. I don't interact with a, with a cup and say, well, is that really, a, like, how does that cup really exist? Am I only ever, inter am I interacting with my perception of the cup or am I acting, interacting with the real cup? Those questions never arise. I just reach for the cup and I don't think, and it never occurs to me that the cup doesn't exist uh, as something uh, as uh, something other than my perception of it. And this is the basic core of what Buddhism means by wrong views, that we are reifying or thingifying or establishing self-existent um, validity to ourselves and the objects that we're interacting with. And that's wrong view. So as a result, we react to these things wrongly. When I when I experience pain, I think that I, I immediately react as if I'm injured. And when I see somebody else injured, like I, I have, uh, you know, probably all of us here are um, empathetic people. And when we see someone else injured, we say, oh, no, that person's hurt, but I'm not hurt. Um, or when the, the cup, teacup breaks, uh, we feel like, oh, the permanent thing has become impermanent, you know, or I have lost the thing that I thought was going to last forever. And I don't mean think and that I assume that the cup's never going to break, but that I'm constantly interacting with it as if it's a permanent thing without analyzing it any kind, in any kind of way. When the thing breaks, I'm, I think, oh, the, the thing was a thing and now it's a broken thing. When in fact, it was always an impermanent thing that I projected thingness onto. And so I react. I'm disappointed when the car breaks down or when the computer fails or when my body fails or when my cat gets sick and dies and I feel sad about it. Um, and then I, and then I react to, and then, so I see the thing fail. I react to it as if I, as if I thought it wasn't going to not fail. And then I do negative things as a result, which those negative things are to reinforce the wrong views. Think that, you know, when I'm sick or I'm injured, I reinforce, I become more convinced that I exist the way that I exist and that when I'm sick, I I'm sick, like capital I, I guess we always capitalize I, um, capital M, me, is, is sick. Um, and then I, and then I, or, or I'm disappointed in the thing that breaks, or um, I'm angry when somebody doesn't do the thing that I want them to do, and, and, uh, and I'm irritated or upset, and I react strongly because of that, which then is what plants the new karma. That reaction 
is what plants the new karma. And then that is what goes back into the cycle. So even more important, and I think we talked about this when we talked about those the list of 10, uh, 10 non-virtue and 10 virtuous karmas. Um, you know, the last three, there was three of body, right? Not physically harming creatures, um, not taking things that aren't freely given and misusing our sexuality to, to harm or manipulate or coerce people. Three of body. Four of speech, which is um, not uh, de deceiving people, um, not um, speaking harshly or ways that, um, up, that are upset people or agitate people, um, not using our speech pointlessly, like gossiping or wasting time with our speech, and um, not dividing people with our speech, right? Not speaking divisively to separate people or to sow discord. Four of speech. And then three of mind, which were the most important, right? The um, not, um, not desire not ignorantly desiring things or or another way of saying it is to um to feel jealous of other people who get good things and to and um to wish that we were having the good thing that they were have that they have um the second is is um ill will or aversion which is where we want to push things that we don't like away from us or getting some kind of delight when bad things happen to people we don't like and then the last of the 10 is um, wrong worldview, which is perpetuating ignorance, or uh, I like to call it uh, willful ignorance, where we, um, even when confronted with seeing the world differently or, or having to update our worldview in order to um, become more wise, we still kind of choose to to default to what's comfortable, even though what's comfortable is what's perpetuating our ignorance. And so this last, so when, when, uh, when we talk about all of the different ranges of negative karmas, um, you know, killing bugs and everything else, what it really comes down to is that, is that wrong worldview, um, which is, thinking that things exist independent of my perceptions thinking that i'm thinking that i'm ever interacting with something other than my own interpretation is actually what's driving the whole engine of karma and the negative actions are all are all driving the engine of karma but really the the one thing that that it all hinges on is this perpetual misunderstanding how things exist and then reacting to them wrongly which is what keeps us in this cycle. Why that's a problem is because that's what causes this this split in reality. This, you know, in Buddhism one of the ways of talking about emptiness uh is non-duality. Like non-duality doesn't mean it's all one big thing, but it means that the subject and the object are not independent of one another. I'm not a, a freestanding, isolated, discrete subject perceiving a self-existing world that I'm just wandering through, but rather that my existence as a subject, as a perceiver, is entirely based on me perceiving objects. And conversely, all the objects only exist as the ob objects, 
due to my perception of them. There, there is no subjective. There is no subjective experiencing without experiencing an objective object, and there are no objective objects without the the subjective perceiver. Those two things are interlinked. They're interdependent. And that understanding is what all of uh, what what right worldview and what wisdom is all based on. And it's because we perceive these things as separate and discrete and self-existent that we are making this mistake of of uh, that's driving karma that I've just described. Okay, so um, one metaphor for this um, is the um, the story of the three beings in the glass of liquid. So it's we'll have we'll have a little story time and then take a break. So um, three beings walk into a bar, and one of the beings is a human being that like like you and I, and one of these beings is a is a deva or a pleasure being. Uh, they live in a god realm where they have where they have so much good karma and so little bad karma that they get everything that they want just because they wish they had it. They don't have to work. Uh, they don't have any major forms of suffering like injury or illness or uh, car accidents or bad days. And the third type of being is a ghost. And ghosts, uh, what, what characterizes the life of a ghost is that they are um, perpetually dissatisfied, that they can't get the things that they want, right? That's when we even when we think of ghosts in the West, that's kind of what we think of as like creature, you know, beings who have died, but they can't go on to whatever the afterlife is because they're still attached to not getting something that they really wanted in, in, on earth, right? And so they haunt a house or they haunt a person or something like that. And so the Buddhist conception, the Indian conception of ghosts is very similar, that they are just, they're disembodied beings that are perpetually dissatisfied. So all three of these beings walk into a bar and the bartender puts down a glass of liquid on the, on the table. And all three beings look at the glass of liquid, but they experience something totally different. Their karma forces them to experience something totally different. The human experiences a glass of water, neutral, but refreshing, right? Basic, what, something that we all take for granted. Uh, when we encounter liquid, generally it's, it's water. That's because our that's what our karma forces us to perceive. The deva, the pleasure being, experiences ambrosia or nectar, you know, something that's so the you know the the fountain of youth or something like this, you know, something that's so extraordinarily wonderful and life giving that we don't even have access to it from the human realm. And the hell being, or the I'm sorry, the the ghost, the ghost perceives it as disgusting gunk that they can't even that they can't even drink right in the in the in the story the way it's written it's a it's a cup of pus Ugh. the the uh the ghost just perceives it as pus and so if these beings could interact with each other the deva would say oh wonderful ambrosia and they would drink it and the human would drink it and say that's not ambrosia that's just water 
and the ghost would say, oh my God, I'm desperate for some water. Please let me have some. And as soon as they pick it up and put it to their mouth, they, they say, this isn't water. This is, this is putrid, disgusting, rotting stuff that, that is not consumable. So the, the object is, is neutral. The object of the glass of liquid is neutral. What it is is based on the type of karma of the individual being that is interacting with it, that's perceiving it. So this is one of the ways that we start to wrap our minds around how karma creates everything in our world. We are, the, the karma from the habits of our past is what's leading to things appearing to us the way they seem to, the way they exist for us. And then how we react to those things is what's planting these karmas that's going in this loop. And so learning about these things helps us make better decisions about how to plant karma that will ripen as the things that we want to have in the future. Thanks for tuning in to the Mojo Hito podcast. For show notes, video, and more information, visit mojohito.com. <laughs>